Well, today as we conclude this series, we're answering the question, why do the innocent suffer? When we were collecting potential questions, this one came up in quite a few different forms. For example, one person asked about the death of innocent children. Another asked about the specific example of the death of Job's family. Still another asked about how a truly good God could allow the depth of suffering that we see in our world. Uh, There were a couple other questions that also hit on this same theme. And so rather than uh, zoom in too deeply on any one of those specific questions, we will today be dealing with a more generic question, the question of why do the innocent suffer? We're going to shine a spotlight today on two particular incidences of suffering that we see in the Bible that I think are helpful for us. And then we will discuss some common errors that we tend to make as human beings when it comes to the question of suffering, and then look at some reasons why God might allow suffering in our lives. The first passage that I'm going to read today is near the end of the book of Job. As you know, Job suffered greatly. It's really the textbook for this uh, question that is before us. He lost his family. He lost essentially everything that he had. And throughout the book of Job, there is this back and forth conversation dealing directly with our topic today. But our reading from Job, Job chapter 42, is at the conclusion of Job's interactions with God related to his suffering. God has just called out Job for questioning him and questioning his motives. And our text today is is Job's response. It's a description of what he had come to understand and know and believe through his suffering. Starting in Job Chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. This is God's word to us. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And then we will turn forward to the Gospel of John, the ninth chapter. And in John chapter 9, we see Jesus addressing a question from his disciples about a man who was born blind. John chapter 9, starting in verse 1. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus replied, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. God, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would give us eyes to see, hearts and minds to believe what you are saying to us today. May we allow your word to examine and interpret our lives, and may you be glorified in our lives and in your church. We pray 
In Jesus' name, amen. There are a number of common errors that we as human beings make when we try to make sense of the suffering that we see in our world. And so this morning, let's start by identifying some of these common errors. The first error that I'll mention is that we fail to see human suffering as a spiritual matter. This actually happens in a number of ways. Sometimes we just chalk our suffering up to bad luck or misfortune. Other times we, like our society around us, just try to find secular explanations and solutions to suffering. And this shouldn't come as a surprise to any of us if we just look around at our world and how we as a society have tried to rationalize the problem of pain and suffering and death and evil. The secular academic world, for example, has felt the need to try to come up with a way to explain the problem of human suffering. And so rather than point the finger, rather than name sin as the problem, the cause of human suffering, they're constantly shifting the blame to another group of people. And what you'll observe is that anytime there's a complex issue, society tries to find a convenient scapegoat, a target to blame. And so we see this often in relation to the wealthy. We'll, we'll blame the wealthy, we'll blame those in power, we'll blame the police, whoever it might be. Those are just topics we've seen in recent years. And once changes are made and once we shift the balance of power and we still don't see any results, then it's the system that's the problem, right? Then we need to dismantle the system because the system is causing the suffering. Now, don't get me wrong. There are some systemic problems in our society related to wealth and race and justice without question. But it's not the fundamental problem. The fundamental problem is that we are a society of sinners. And sinners will do what sinners always do. Human suffering is central to the human experience. And while we might be able to ease some measure of suffering through, for example, social policy, political policy, that those policies aren't the cause of it and they're not ultimately the solution of it. And most of us, most of us know that. Many of us have observed various attempts to fix the evils in society and we've seen that time and again they fall short. And we, we know that that's the case because the problem isn't policy or the system. The problem is human nature. Jesus told us exactly what we should expect in this world. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. And so as Christians, we reject the overly simplistic explanations or political solutions that are offered regarding the problem of human suffering. We recognize that human suffering is fundamentally a spiritual matter. The next common error that we make is this, that we forget that there are things that we just can't understand. Think of the words of Job in our sermon text. What was it that Job came to know and to understand during his trials? Job says, surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. Job comes to realize through his suffering that there were things that he couldn't see. That there were things that he was just incapable of understanding. 
that God sees all things and knows all things and is able to recognize how things fit together. We don't have that luxury. We are stuck in the valley oftentimes and we don't have the perspective. We don't have the view from the high ground that God has. I find this confession of Job in chapter 42 verse 3 so helpful for us. Surely I spoke of things I didn't understand. Deuteronomy chapter 29 puts it this way. Deuteronomy 29, it says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. Or in Romans chapter 11, Paul said this. He said in his doxology of praise to God, he said, Oh, the depth and the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. We so easily forget that we are limited in our perspective. We look around us and and it's easy to think that this is all that there is to know, that what we can see is all that there is to understand about the situation. And so we evaluate our suffering or the trial that we're going through in light of what we know, in light of what our eyes can see. And we make judgments about all sorts of things, including God's character and God's goodness, based upon what we know, what we can see. And we so often forget that there is so much that we can't see, so much that we can never know. That we do well in our suffering in our doubts, in our struggles, to remember this confession of Job. Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. The third error that we make regarding human suffering is this, that we see ourselves as the center of the universe. This is sort of the perpetual human problem, isn't it? We try to construct our universe, we we build our world, or at least our understanding of it, with us at the very center. If something happens that we like, we declare it good, because we're the center of our own universe. But if something happens that we don't like, we label it bad, as if we are the center around which everything else spins, as if we are the ultimate moral authority. Just previous to our text in Job, a couple chapters back, in chapter 38, God responds to Job, and it's such a humbling couple of verses. Job chapter 38, verses 4 through 6, God says this as he questions Job. He says, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? There's almost a little bit of of sarcasm in in this, right? As God responds to Job, like, surely, Job, you you were there. You saw it all happen. You're you're a smart guy. This is such a, a healthy and helpful reminder. Not only in making sense of suffering, but in every aspect of life. We are not at the center of the universe. We did not lay the foundation of this world. God is the center. 
And just because we struggle to make sense of how he works and what he allows doesn't mean that we have grounds upon which to argue against him. The fourth error that we make is that we have a tendency to presume guilt. We see this in our text in the Gospel of John, chapter 9, when the disciples ask Jesus, who sinned, this guy or his parents? They see the man who is blind from birth, and they presume that somebody is guilty. And we do the same thing. When we see something bad happen to other people, we tend to presume that they must have done something to deserve this. This is the the pagan teaching of karma, that you get what you have coming to you. If you suffer, it certainly must be because God's mad at you. But Jesus says, stop it. Like, don't think that way. He tells his disciples that this didn't happen because someone had sinned, but because God had a purpose for it. You see this take place in our world after every major natural disaster. There's some idiot television preacher who has a word from the Lord explaining exactly why an earthquake happened or why a hurricane hit a particular city. But, but of course, that's playing God, right? That's pretending like you know something that is a mystery, that only God is capable of knowing. Because we can't understand why God allows certain things in certain places, but not others. But inevitably, when, it, when it's suffering related to someone that we don't like, we always, by nature, presume guilt. But not only do we have the tendency to presume guilt, we also have a tendency to presume innocence. The word innocent is part of our question for today. Why do the innocent suffer? We might rightfully respond to a question like this by asking, is anyone actually innocent? To get to the heart of that, we have to define what we mean by Innocent. We, we might think of innocence in two ways, or two planes upon which we can understand the meaning of the word innocent, or innocence. We might think of, uh, of both vertical innocence and horizontal innocence. When we speak of vertical innocence, we're talking about our standing before God. And scripture is pretty clear that before God, there are no innocent people, none period. Before God, there are no innocent people. Romans 3 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And and just in case we think there's an age limit on that, David says that from conception he was a sinner. Scripture speaks clearly. No human person can stand before God with a claim of innocence. Ephesians 2 says that by our very nature, not necessarily by what we do, but by our very nature, we are children of wrath. And so we have no claim to innocence before a holy, perfect God. But what many mean when they use the word innocent is more of a horizontal innocence. While we have no biblical argument for vertical innocence before God, Scripture clearly recognizes levels of what we might call horizontal innocence. Scripture speaks of people who do good and people who do bad. Scripture speaks, as one example, of the 
preciousness of children and warns against those who would corrupt it. So there is a sense of horizontal innocence in our world. It's the conflating or the confusion of vertical innocence with horizontal innocence that causes some of our problems when it comes to this question. All human persons from the very beginning of our existence are guilty sinners before God. You don't have to like that. It's just what the Bible teaches in both the Old and the New Testaments. You might ask, and rightfully so, you might ask, well, what about the age of accountability? And my simple response is that no such thing exists. It's a product of human logic. It's not in the Bible. We are all deserving of God's wrath. God owes us nothing. And so we want to be careful that we don't presume some innocence that just isn't fact or reality. You, as a person, may be less sinful in terms of volume or severity than your neighbor, but you are still a sinner before a holy God. So don't presume guilt like the disciples in John 9, but also don't presume some false innocence that isn't reality. I understand that can sound cold. Uh, And so that brings me to the final error that I'll discuss this morning, and that's this, that we forget the goodness of God. This is truly the point in the discussion where faith enters in. You will not be able to make any sense of human suffering without the belief that God is good even when we can't wrap our minds around what he does or what he allows, even when our feelings scream something to the contrary. If you believe that God is fundamentally good, then you can respond, for example, like Job did in Job chapter 1, when he says, The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But you can only declare praise to God in the midst of suffering if you believe that God truly is good, that all that he does, all that he allows is good, even when our eyes and our feelings say otherwise. And so this is a critical part of this discussion, that scripture teaches that God is good in everything that he does, every day, in every situation. So let's recap these six errors. We fail to see human suffering as a spiritual matter. We forget that there are things that we can't understand. We see ourselves as the center of the universe. We have a tendency to presume guilt and innocence. And we forget the goodness of God. Let's now consider why God might allow suffering. And I say the word might because... We want to assume the posture of Job from our text. We want to consider suffering with the realization that we don't see everything and we don't know everything and we don't understand everything and and we don't want to make the mistake of the disciples in our gospel reading from John, assuming that there is some direct cause of the suffering. And so why might God allow suffering in our lives? I want to preface this by saying that there are uh, hundreds and hundreds of stories just in this room this morning of deep suffering. Essentially, all of us could look back 
could identify one or five or a dozen stories or examples or situations of deep human suffering. Some of you had a fairy tale marriage that fell apart. Some of you are right now alienated from family that you once held so dear. Some of you haven't talked to children in years. Some of you have been physically, emotionally, or sexually abused. Some of you have been forced to bury your children. Some of you have been abandoned. And at the same time, some of you have been the cause of some of these types of pain in another, and and you haven't received forgiveness, and you haven't been able to forgive yourself. Some of you have suffered debilitating pain and chronic illness. Some of you have been tortured by your own brain chemistry. Some of you have wrestled internally with your sexuality. The list could go on and on. There are many instances and varieties of suffering represented here this morning. And I want to make sure that you hear this. These reasons of why God might allow suffering in our lives are exactly that. I am not God. And so I don't know exactly why you have been forced to experience what you have experienced. I I don't know why God has allowed a, a certain painful path in your life and spared another person from that same path. And so don't hear these as the pastor saying, this is why you have suffered. Hear these as, as questions. Could it be? Could it be that this is what God had in mind? Could it be that this is a window through which I can begin to grasp God's mysterious purposes in my suffering? Could it be that God was doing this during that season? And so with that in in mind, let's consider why God might allow suffering in our lives. And and the first reason that I want to share is this. That suffering can cause our eyes to be opened to God. We saw this directly in both of our scripture readings this morning. In Job's story, we find that amazing confession. Listen to how Job describes the change that suffering brought about in his life. In chapter 42, verse 5, he says, My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Job says that because of his suffering, he went from having heard of God, from having some knowledge of God, to actually knowing God and seeing God. Think about the man who was born blind. He has the same exact testimony. When grilled by the Pharisees, he said he really had no idea who Jesus was. In fact, we see at the beginning, this man doesn't even approach Jesus. It's not like other stories where his friends would bring him to Jesus. It's Jesus and the disciples who see this man who was born blind, and the disciples make their inquiry of Jesus. Who sinned? Who's the cause of this? Who messed up that caused this to happen? By the end of the chapter, if you read all of John chapter 9, things change dramatically. By verse 38 of John chapter 9, the blind man declares, Lord, I believe. So God used 
the suffering of Job and the suffering of the blind man to open both of their eyes to him. Both stories end with the sufferers seeing God. Some of you have had this very experience. God used times of suffering and pain to open your eyes to him. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon used an illustration about a ship on the ocean that was overloaded with things. Imagine in your mind's eye this ship on the ocean that's barely able to stay above water because it's loaded down with so many things. And here is Spurgeon's quote. He says this, You are like a ship that is going down through overloading. And you will have to be unloaded so that you may float. And blessed is that hand of God that does unload you of many an earthly joy so that you may find your all in the world to come. Affliction, Spurgeon says, affliction is God's black dog that he sends after wandering sheep to bring them back to the fold. Is it possible? Could it be that God has allowed suffering to take place in order that our eyes might be opened to him? The second thought that I want to share with you this morning is this. That suffering can be the training ground for character and hope. Romans chapter 5 verses 3 through 4 says this. Paul writes, we also rejoice in our sufferings. Seems like such a strange phrase. We rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. And perseverance produces character. And character produces hope. Our nature tells us that suffering will destroy us. But God tells us that suffering produces something. It gives birth to something. It produces perseverance. And perseverance, in turn, produces character. And character results in hope. In other words, suffering leads us to being who God wants us to be. To having our eyes focused where God wants our eyes to be focused. In 1 Peter chapter 4, we, we read these words. Peter is writing in 1 Peter to sufferers. He says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with that same attitude. Because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. In other words, suffering changes us. It changes who we are and what we live for and what we worship. Or think of it this way. Suffering has the ability to make our pride seem foolish. We take pride in what we do and how strong we are and how smart we are and how beautiful we are and how wealthy we are. And, and there are times when God takes those things away from us so that we see just how utterly foolish our pride is. 
And when we come to the end of ourselves, when we have no place else to turn, we, we might just be ready to see and to believe and to receive the sufficiency of Christ and his grace for sinners. As long as we're trusting in ourselves, as long as we have no perceivable need, we also have no need for Christ. But when we suffer, God changes us. He releases our grip on the things of this world. He opens our hands, readying us to receive the provision and the sufficiency of Christ. Suffering can cause our eyes to be open to God. It can be the training ground for character and hope. And third, we see that suffering can make us long for Christ's return. When Jesus returns, Scripture tells us, it was expressed by Tolkien uh, so helpfully, that, he, that Christ will make everything sad come untrue. In suffering, our vision is narrowed, it's focused. We stop looking for temporary and passing solutions because we know that they won't help. And we begin seeking permanent and eternal solutions. Why is it that the church attendance and openness to faith increase as we age? It's not because we become more foolish or gullible. It's because we've suffered. Because we've seen the inadequacy of ourselves. We've seen the inadequacy of all of the answers that this world offers. We've come to recognize that government isn't the solution and money isn't the solution. Suffering focuses our attention. And specifically, it focuses us on the longing for things to be made right. For everything sad to come untrue. And that's the promise of Scripture. That there is coming a day when all will be made right. And what is almost always true is that, that the people who most readily long for Christ to return are the people who have suffered deeply. Those who have loosened their grip on this world and are living with great hope and anticipation for the next. And so is it possible that God has allowed suffering so that our eyes would be opened to him? So that we would be who God wants us to be and so that we would long for Christ's return? Why do the innocent suffer? I've been helped by the way that C.S. Lewis processed this question. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, suppose that what you are up against is a surgeon whose intentions are wholly good. The kinder and more conscientious he is, the more inexorably he will go on cutting. Suppose that what you are up against is a surgeon whose intentions are wholly good. The kinder and more conscientious he is, the more inexorably he will go on cutting. C.S. Lewis says, suppose that God is completely good and wants nothing but the very best for you. He wants you to trust in him alone. He wants 
your heart to desire the right things. He wants you to long for eternity and not be distracted by the empty promises and lies of our world. Then isn't it possible that in his goodness, in his kindness, in his mercy, in his love for you, that he will go on cutting, focusing your attention, reminding you that you aren't God, you don't see and understand everything, and leave you with a, a fierce, a strong longing for everything to be made right. Isn't it possible that a good God allows suffering because we need suffering? First Peter chapter 5, I reminded you that Peter was writing to sufferers. Look at what Peter says in chapter 5. He says, And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast to him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Our suffering today, as Peter says, is temporary because of the promises of God. Because Jesus suffered once for your sin and for mine, and he overcame the grave, and he has gone to prepare a place for us where sin and suffering are no more. Our suffering today, while Oh, so difficult. Is temporary. It will not last. Because God has promised. Because God is good. We can't fully wrap our minds around human suffering. We can't make perfect sense of everything that we experience in this life. I can't tell you exactly why that one event in your life took place. Because in order to do that, I would have to be God. But I can tell you that God is good in all that he does. I can tell you that he cares about you more than you could ever know. And I can tell you that Jesus is with you right now. He will never leave you or forsake you. And I can tell you that he is coming again to make everything right, to make everything sad come untrue. Did you notice how the text in Job ended? Chapter 42, verse 6 says, Therefore, this is Job's response after God questions him, Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Don't think of despise as Job hating himself, but just recognizing his position in relation to the strength and might of God. Job humbles himself before God and repents. He says, God, I trust in you. You are right and good even when I can't see it. I want to leave you today with those words from 1 Peter chapter 5. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you, and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Let's pray.
Lord, I pray that you would meet every sufferer here this morning with your mercy. Give us faith to trust that you are good, even when it doesn't seem like it from our perspective. We confess that we struggle to trust you in those most difficult seasons, but we thank you for the promise that suffering in this life is always temporary. And so, Lord, we repent of our sin, of our pride, of our false assumptions, of our unbelief, of our self-worship, of our doubt. And we ask you to minister to us, to comfort us, to protect us in our times and seasons of suffering. And give us your perspective that all suffering here is temporary in view of all that you have promised, in view of eternity. And so we pray, come Lord Jesus and make all things new. Amen.